0: The kittens we're back with another very special stay at home self-quarantine episode of the brando cast it is the 101st episode of the brando cast and my guest today holy fucking shit if you want to have your mind blown you go to imdb.com and you type in the words reed diamond and if you're an actor in the city of los angeles prepare to cry because all this motherfucker does is work Work, 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 <laughs> Brando.
1: Oh my God, I am I am chuffed to my bollocks to be here, my friend. I have this is long time, first time, and I am so. I mean, I've been listening to you since you. you I mean, we've known each other for a very long time, but I've been listening to you since episode one.
0: I can't believe we're at one oh one, and uh, I love it. I'm just I'm so delighted. I saved the best for last, even though it's not the last. But no. I saved the best for. For this time and space. So let me ask one question. Yes, my Lord. Where the fuck are you? Well, I am in sunny Toronto, Canada.
1: Um, you can probably see some snow out there in Lawrence Harris Square. Um, so yeah, or Lauren Harris Square, a famous Canadian artist. And uh, so yeah, so I I fled the United States uh two and a half years ago just in time for quarantine, because uh we'd uh we wanted to give our daughter a little city life. I'm a New York kid and my my wife had grown up here in Toronto, and we're like, oh, we'll go to we'll go there. It'll be it's like, you know, it's like New York light or whatever. And and then promptly, uh, everything shut down. Right after we, you know, we'd signed her up for Second City classes, I'd gotten my uh, art museum membership for the year because I was going to do all those civic things that city dwellers do. And um, But luckily, we, uh, we, my wife found a nice condo, so it's been fun to uh, uh, quarantine ensemble, as it were, here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, let me I would say one thing. Yes. Very few guests come to this show With the fucking equipment that
1: you've got. (laughs) dude I didn't want to let you down come on man this is a professional I mean this is a sonic joy to listen to the Brando cast I mean my deep regret I mean when I remember when lockdown first happened because i would so you know you and I've been talking about doing this for a while and I was like I was so excited to go into the studio with you and I was thinking about what gift I would bring and we would drink something and we would talk and and then when everything went you know virtual on via the zoom or the squadcastcom uh, uh wherever it, it uh, I was I was sad but this is lovely. I feel I feel close to you and I think I've been so now uh, uh, conditioned to communicate in this manner. Uh, but I feel like you deserve my best mic, my headphones, the whole shebang because this is this is a real podcast. This isn't one of those. you know, I, I do some sketchy ones. Um, where you're like, really? okay I, I don't know if anyone's gonna listen to it, but it's a it's a good you know I, I enjoy hearing myself talk so uh, but uh, this no come on I love you man and I I came prepared I'm excited I've got I'm caffeinated I, uh, I meditated prior I'm I'm ready to rock
0: well okay well yeah. so th- let's just call this round one yes call it round one because uh, you know maybe when you return to the city of Los Angeles at some point in the not too distant future I'm sure because all you do is work and only you must yeah. And I only
1: Do worked it? in Los Angeles ever since we moved to Canada. When we lived in California, I only worked in Canada. And now that we've lived here, I've only done shows in Los Angeles. So uh, that's just the way it goes. Right as soon as we moved, I got a show in fucking Napa. You know, and I'm like, why why couldn't I? Get... Yeah, why oh, when we lived here and I could have brought my little, lovely family up to visit me and, in, in, you know, move from, from one wine area to the next um no no they're here and i'm alone in napa so uh yeah so we'll definitely do it in person um for, of course every time i go to los angeles i'm there to work so i can't see anybody because i have to maintain my uh, bubble of isolation
0: well, we will do it in yes. person, but okay. we're doing it uh, via Squadcast right now. So, well, let me ask one question yes, before we, we get into a, a band that we have not talked about oh on the Bandocast before. What are you working on right now? Okay. Um, right now, I mean, I got a couple of things coming out right now. I'm going
1: to be in Gaslit, which is the Watergate, um, because uh, I'm a Watergate nerd. So this is a cool, a really cool star series with, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of these actors, Sean Penn and, um, uh. yeah, I don't see Julia Roberts. Yeah, they've done some things. They're on IMDb, too. You should look them up. But uh, directed by my buddy, Matt Ross. So that's really cool. I'm going to... I'm playing Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, in that. So that was really cool because I... I grew up, Watergate was sort of my formative political experience. I mean, I think you and I are contemporaries, and I just remember those. The TV was always on in my house, but it was on with the news. Then my father worked at a local television station in New York, and he directed the news. So I would go down to the newsroom, and they'd all be watching the Watergate hearing. So I felt intimately connected from a very young age to all of those characters that some of them hadn't really made it into the narrative, like Martha Mitchell and John Mitchell. And I knew who all these people were. So this is a great series. It sort of explo- explores the people that haven't really been talked about. We've talked about Mark Felton, and we've talked about Woodward and Bernstein, but there's a lot of really interesting characters. And I think also um, what's so cool about it is, you know, these stories get mythologized over time and people's, you know, motivations always are made scrubbed pure you know, as if they're just, uh, they're always noble pursuits, but you know, as an actor and as a human being, you know, nine times out of 10, someone's pursuing stuff for their own personal gain or reasons. So it's interesting to see all of the moving pieces. So that's really cool. And then, um, I guess, Oh, I'm, I'm, I guess I can say this. I'm, I'm going to appear on the final season of Better Call Saul. Um, but I can't say anything about that. And, uh, and then in, in music news, I just finished the coolest indie movie, which uh, follows a couple of juggles followers of the insane clown posse and one of the, m- the most amazing scripts it was um, sent to me um by a friend of mine who was a is a cinematographer and a gaffer and he he called me up over the summer and he's like i wrote this script and i go oh that's the last thing you don't you never want to read anyone's scripts because the, it's always disappointing right you're just like hey i've got a script i like you to read it and you're spending the whole um, but i uh, you're spending the whole time going how am i gonna find the positives in this but it was probably the best script i've read in 20 years so we just went down to new orleans uh, i was down there last month shooting that playing one of my uh, succession of just profoundly evil white people which has become my milieu um as it were <laughs> That's what I do now. I mean, thank God, you know, I I thank God there's just tons of evil white people out in the world. Otherwise, well, you look evil. I am. Yeah, I'm (laughs) evil. You you just read evil. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, you know me personally, uh, but on TV, I play evil. I also play adults on TV. In real life, I, I was dropping my daughter off at school when we were living up in Los Olivos and this, uh... This uh, parent who doesn't know how to talk to actors came up to me. He's like, "Hey, Reed, saw you on TV. You look really old," and and I go, I go, dude, <laughs> that's because you only see me in shorts and a backwards baseball cap on TV. I wear suits all the time. In fact, until I just finally put on long pants because it's like minus twenty here. But I, I, the only time I've worn long pants in the last two years is at work and they always put me in lovely suits, you know? Uh, But yes, so I've got that. Those things are, those things are coming up. I have got some things that came out this year. I mean, I've been really lucky to work during this time because, you know, when we all went into our little, into our little caves in two years ago now, almost, I thought, oh, this is it. I mean, I'm going to, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? How are we going to eat? And uh, luckily I've, I've been fortunate enough to work as soon as things opened up. So I did, um, I was able to do the last season of Bosch played a douchey white guy on that one, one of my favorite douchey white guys. And then I did the they rebooted leverage and I did that. And so I've been I've been really fortunate. And I just had a great series this year um, that no one saw on Peacock. I don't think anyone saw it, called Girl in the Woods. Um so it was like I've been fortunate. But it was funny because for the first year of lockdown, when I started working, because my family's in Canada and we were working in the States, I got separated from them for almost six months, the longest we've ever been oh. separated Yeah, because what happened, because before the uh, vaccine, uh, it was a mandatory two-week quarantine if you came into Canada, so I couldn't come home for the weekend, so I was just stuck living in my little, I had some friends in Los Angeles and up in Los Olivos, and we had our own little COVID bubble, so I was separated for six months from them, so that was awful. So last year, I had a gig starting out in Portland, so we just piled everyone, the dog, my my wife, my daughter, into the car, and we just, we drove from here to Portland, and then we'd circumnavigated the entire United States states going from gig to gig and then uh going and experiencing things you know showing my daughter all of america because at this point my dog has gone on many road trips with me so he'd seen more states than she had but now we caught her up um and so it was pretty it was pretty it was an amazing journey starting like last may until october we were just on the road in our in our chevy tahoe
0: um, I've been in sweats since um, March of 2020. Yeah, and three. I want to thank you for wearing an ACDC shirt. Oh yeah, there it is.
1: Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 40th anniversary of uh, for those about to rock
0: uh, right now, which was my first ACDC concert at Madison Square Garden. That was my first ACDC tour at Tingley Coliseum in (laughs) Albuquerque, New Mexico. I don't know if you guys shot at Tingley when you did Better Call Saul, but um, we are going to have a lot in common today. Oh, hell yeah. uh, Which will be my way to segue into our topic. All right. Um, When I asked Mr. Diamond what he would like to talk about, he picked a band that we have not covered on the BrandoCast, even though it's one of the most important bands of all time. The Cure are an English rock band formed in 1978 in Crawley, West Sussex. The band has had thousands of lineup changes since its formation with guitarist, lead vocalist, and primary songwriter Robert Smith remaining The Cure's only constant member. Robert Smith is The Cure. The band's debut album was Three Imaginary Boys in 1979, and this album, along with several early singles, placed the band in the early post-punk and new wave movements in the UK. Over time, the band's increasingly dark and tormented style, along with Smith's signature stage looks, had a strong influence on the emerging genre of gothic rock. Uh, Now, Reed, for the sake of discussion today, I have sort of called bits and pieces of Cure information from Wikipedia and added my own stuff to it. So tell me why you picked The Cure. Well, I mean, if when you get your
1: Spotify yearly report, um, I always, Cure is the number one played band. And in fact, I start every year, like from January to March, I don't listen to anything but The Cure. Mm. But The Cure is... Oh, it, yes. I, it, I mean, it, it's hard to pick your favorite band, but I would have to say just based on playing it alone, they're my favorite band. I mean, uh, Disintegration and Wish are, I think, I, I don't know that I've listened in the CD era to any albums all the way through as many times as I've listened to those two albums. Um, also, you know, because you and I are of, of from the same generation and probably uh, contemporaries, the beauty of The Cure and what's sustained them all these years is, no, it didn't exist until they did it. When the Cure, when, when you first heard Boys Don't Cry and, and you were like, what is this? I remember calling the local radio station in Manhattan asking them to play it because it was hard to, you know, you'd heard it once and it was not something that was on their constant rotation. What station was that? This was interesting because this was WPIX. And then on the Sunday mornings, they would do a two hour sort of new music thing. So that was like the first place I heard Elvis Costello and you're hearing Cure and Echo and the bunnyman. That was like Enjoy Division places. That was the first place. Place. you have this two hour window. You had to get up early on a Sunday and, and listen to that. Cause it wasn't obviously part of the, everyone was doing classic rock at that time or, you know, whatever it, was. it wasn't. I guess they were calling it classic, but they weren't, it was hard to get those in the main rotation. But what I love about the cure and I think they're just, I think they're a perfect band and they've constantly evolved and morphed, but always been innovative and always just made incredible music. And I love their aesthetic. So their aesthetic musically is 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 magical you know i mean what i as a as a person who wishes he was a musician what i love about uh, robert smith's um construction of those songs is it's all simple parts beautifully woven together in fact i i I was reading because i'm a total nerd about all of this stuff the way they when they were producing 17 seconds which is one of my you know one of the again their sound changes sort of each album and and evolves in their songwriting um he said that everyone could only play single lines. So the keyboard player couldn't play chords. It had to be single notes and the bass players playing, you know, obviously the bass players playing single notes and you see even in their most complex, you know, uh, compositions on disintegration, whatever they're, the lines are all very simple and they're space. And um, but so musically they were just so spectacular. Um, and then their whole shtick was they invented it. Like they're, they, no one looked like them. They had their aesthetic down. They knew who they were. And then the lyrics um, are so... um, Well, I used to joke with my wife. I go, no one wants a happy Robert Smith. Because if you have a happy Robert Smith, what are you going to write about? But they're so beautifully... you know, in, in that era before you knew anything about artists, where you're trying to just sort of read the tea leaves and check the rune stones as you're listening to a, a song, he's revealing so much about his experiences and, and his failures as a, as a spouse or a lover or whatever. And then, I mean, you know, like I love opening, you know, where he's just coming to some party and he's getting drunk, you know, the beginning, the first song on Wish. I think they're just a magical band and they still sound great. They sound great live, and in fact, compared to any of those bands from that era, uh, or any band really, they're still. Their last album in two thousand and eight is still got great songs on it. They're still writing really beautiful music, and I just think the tastiness of the orchestration, just that, the Simon Gallup bass lines, his bass sound. I mean, Robert Smith's guitar playing and the use of that baritone guitar and his amazing voice and uh, lyricism, I just there's no one like them, and I think you know this is what I love about your show, and I love about you so much. It's like we were very lucky to live in a time when things that we heard were, were being heard for the first time. It didn't exist until the Beatles did it, or to the Rolling Stones or the Who did it, or now you know the beauty of this post punk. Because post punk is probably I'm, I was a I was a big punk fan, like a, you know, 70s punk fan, New York and London punk, British punk. And then this post-punk was magical because what happened was suddenly working class people could afford synthesizers. They suddenly made these, you know, because before it was just, you know, Rick Wakeman, you know, you had to be a billionaire to have all of that gear but suddenly they made compact and affordable you know Japanese uh, synthesizers which are still my favorite synth sounds you know the Roland Ones and and the Yamahas and and all of those the Casios even Um, and so these guys could experiment with that and suddenly this music that we'd never heard we took the ethos of punk you know DIY do it yourself you don't have to you know have gone to the Berklee School of Music to make an album and now they're finding these other sonic landscapes and I mean obviously Echo and the Bunnymen did it so well, and Cure and Joy Division morphing into New Order, but, I mean, the, the Cure were, I think, they're singular.
0: They need to hire you uh, to be their <laughs> PR person. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> okay. The Cure released their debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, in May of 1979. The band... Particularly, Robert Smith were unhappy with the album. The band's second single, Boys Don't Quiet, was released in June of 79. The Cure then embarked as the support band for Susie and the Banshees Join Hands tour of England, North Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. That tour saw Robert Smith pull double duty each night with The Cure and with the Banshees as their guitarist. That musical experience had a strong impact on Smith, who said, on stage that first night with the Banshees, I was blown away by how powerful I felt playing that kind of music the kind of music that Reed described in his previous preamble. It was so different than what we were doing with The Cure. Before that, I wanted us to sound like the Buzzcocks or Elvis Costello, the punk Beatles. Being a Banshee really changed my attitude to what I was doing. Um, And I just wanna say, quick tangent side note for people listening to this. There's so many great old school videos of Robert Smith playing with Susie on YouTube. So if you want to get into that, uh, just type "Susie into the void" or "Love in a Void," and you'll see that young Robert Smith playing guitar with her. Um, okay, let's talk about young Reed Diamond. Okay, Did you up. mentioned New York. Yes, sir. Mention your dad to give me your late seventies, early eighties. Coming of Age, New York, Manhattan story. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in New
1: York City in the seventies and the early eighties, and it is it's interesting now because there's so much sort of. Um, I was we were just watching uh, Summer of Soul last night, and um, and then you were, and there was the there was the Summer of Sam, you know, the Sam, uh, you know, um, uh, forty four caliber killer, uh, son of Sam uh, documentaries. You know, that was that was my New York. My father literally worked. At Times Square, he worked for WOR, which was Channel 9, and their offices were literally right there at 42nd Street at at Times Square. I mean, and it was, you know, it was just Kung Fu and X-rated movies and and that craziness. And it's such a I, I feel. It's. I have. I feel very fortunate that I got to grow up in Manhattan in that time because it was, it, there was all of this creative energy, obviously with the music scene and theater and uh, the films that were shot there. But it was also, it was terrifying. I mean, I, I've lost track of how many times I've been mugged in my in my youth um it because it was incredibly with all of that grit it was profoundly dangerous and uh, especially for somebody who who uh the blondest blue-eyed uh new york city in fact <laughs> i always think about this uh, i was so at my public school i was so foreign that the way that many of the people refer to me the only touchstones they had would either be to call me amy carter who was Jimmy Carter's daughter? Because <laughs> because I was freckly and blue eyed and but they would either call me Amy Carter or they call me Richie Cunningham and I just remember like all like the Puerto Rican girls from the neighborhood like Hey Richie Cunningham and I'm, oh my oh. god but uh, but you know so those were the because no one had ever seen <laughs> no I was the whitest person in my neighborhood for some reason you're an alien I was an alien I was where, where did you, where where was your neighborhood where I was did you guys where were you living Well the Upper West Side before it was fashionable um, so but it was cool. Because I was listening, watching uh, *Summer of Soul* last night. Because I, I grew up in this uh, Puerto Rican and D- Dominican and African American neighborhood, so all that music was there all the time. I'm listening to salsa all the time and hearing it, and and then, uh, but so the but the '70s uh, in New York were it was a, it was a great time because there was amazing theater on Broadway. But uh, I was talking about my father. So my father worked at Channel Nine and he directed the news, but he also directed the Joe Franklin Show. <gasps> what are you familiar with the joe franklin story? Oh, yeah. oh yeah of course he was parodied by billy crystal on snl but Joe Franklin was this amazing sort of iconic, um I mean, sort of invented that talk show format where he, but what was great about Joe is you could literally have Barbara Streisand in one chair, and then like Vinny, who who played, you know, the bongos in in Pascataway, New Jersey. And he would treat them all like, Vinny, you are a wonderful talent. We're so lucky to have you here. You know, Barbara, what do you want to ask Vinny? You know, like it was all like everyone was uh, and I was in preparation for this, I was thinking I almost got kicked out of um high school to attend the joe franklin show because they had as a guest in this pilot what is this 81 or 82 they had the jay giles band on and the jay giles band would own the only talk show they were promoting the album freeze frame freeze frame and the only show that they would go on to promote it was the joe franklin show so I had, I had been kicked out of English class. So this is ninth grade and I've been kicked out of English class for disrupting something. So I'm standing outside the door and I was, I knew I had to ask to leave early and I'm standing there and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not gonna be able to ask the teacher's permission. So I just split, I just left school because I didn't want to miss the taping of the Jay Giles band. <laughs> pro on, move. On the pro move. On pro the pro move. I mean, I survived, I, you know, I had to, my father had to talk me back into the school, but, um, but I get down to the studio and I watch them on the Joe Franklin show and then got to go see their concert at Madison Square. Garden. And that's part wow. of you know, talk about growing up in New York City. Like all of my first concerts were Madison Square Garden. And I think we wow. share our, KISS was your first concert, correct?
0: Yeah, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Which yes. which tour? Love Gun
1: Tour. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So mine was Dynasty <laughs> tour. <laughs> okay. It was still great. It was great at Madison yeah. Square Garden. But I remember seeing the Jay Giles band who, you know, I'd only really knew about them because the, of Love Stinks. Do you remember Love Stinks? Of course. That right? was a huge video too. It was a huge video before there were videos. So I used to see the this is this all ties into new york so i used to see the, the love stinks video used to play before the rocky horror picture show at the <laughs> 8th street playhouse so the 8th street playhouse was where when they when they when they invented the floor show they moved uh, down the street into the 8th street playhouse so in 1979 seventh grade i started going on to the midnight show of rocky horror picture show in new york city which was just it was just so magical and so you'd have you know, all those people all the original people they'd all be dressed up doing the whole thing and then than before because there was no mtv yet you know you had to watch you know uh, kenny everett's video show or whatever you'd watch to try to watch remember that you have to try to watch to grab some videos and so they would play love stinks and it just seemed so cool just that boom bah, boom bah, bom, bom. so i was really into they'd also play they'd also play the full video of paradise by the dashboard light I guess cause, cause meatloaf and then the movie, but, um, but then I saw Jay Guy, so I got to go see Jay Giles be on the uh, Joe Franklin show. And then we went to Madison square garden, George Thorogood opened up for him. He was amazing. And then they played, they played one of the most amazing shows. And I wasn't necessarily a, a deep, I wasn't at all a deep fan of, of Jay Giles band, but it really set for me, like the aesthetic of what I want in a show. They literally played, they played until he passed out and they played for like three and a half hours and it was, you know, still there was those early days So people are throwing joints up on the stage. He's smoking them. And it's just interesting, you know, watching that summer of soul last night, I it really, you could see how when you're, when you've got great musicians, they're, What I want when I go to a concert is to have a singular experience that's unique to that evening and it's happening in front of you and you'd see, you know, Summer of Soul, you're seeing these guys are such competent, I mean, not competent, it's ridiculous, they're profoundly exceptional musicians that they're improvising in front of you. And they're so talented and, and, and I want to see that, you know, cause now, you know, nowadays, you know, there's a lot of shows that I go to where it just feels like the review. It feels like a Vegas review. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't, we don't have to name any bands that I've seen recently where I'm just going, really, I feel like you're patter. You've done it every night, but it was a magical time, um, in New York musically. And even though I couldn't go down to CBGBs because I was nine and 10, I was so aware of it. And all of that music was, I mean, I, I love the dolls. And when I remember, I remember the first time I heard the Ramones and I was like, what is this magic music? And so I think, uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the city during that time and be exposed to that music because also, you know, for, to, to Jen explain right before we had, um, the internet, um, there were scenes right I mean that's you talk about this all the time I mean so you could be you know you could only you know only people in the midwest know about the replacements or only people in Athens Georgia know about B-52s and REM at this point and so New York was still it still was a scene and so I was exposed to all of that music and it, it and it really was transformative and uh, I also <laughs> I'll just tell one funny New York story so uh we had my I had my prom and 1985, I guess, when I graduated high school and I didn't want to go, our, our, our dance was going to be at the top of the world trade center at windows on the world. And I just didn't seem like fun because we weren't going to be able to drink there. And it just seemed like a long elevator ride. I didn't want to go. So we went to the cat club. And I'm there with my date. The, the cat club was this little club in New York. And this uh, group who happened to be touring with Madonna came and did a surprise set. It was the freaking Beastie Boys, right? Bef- right before Fight for Your Right had come out. And I, I knew who these guys were because they went to um, a, a, a high school there, a private high school that I knew, all of, I knew a bunch of kids from. So I knew of them from school. But then they performed. I was like, what is this magic? So, you know, growing up in a city like that, you can have uh, cer- certain of these serendipitous Um, experiences that I feel very fortunate, and they definitely were formative.
0: Smith exerted a greater influence on The Cure's second album, 17 Seconds, which he co-produced with Mike Hedges. The album was released in 1980 and reached number 20 on the UK charts. A Forest became the band's first UK hit single, reaching number 31 on the charts. The album was a departure from The Cure's sound up to that point, with Hedges describing it as Morse, atmospheric, very different to Three Imaginary Boys. In 1981, The Cure reconvened with Hedges to produce their third album, Faith which furthered the dour mood present on 17 seconds. The album peaked at number 14 on the UK charts. In late 1981, The Cure released the non-album single, Charlotte Sometimes. By this point, the somber mood of the music had a profound effect on the attitude of the band. Sometimes, Smith would be so absorbed by the persona he created on stage that he would leave the show at the end in Cheers. Wow. Okay. So let me ask uh, kind of an an early 80s question of you. Without re-triggering trauma in you, (laughs) specific trauma, can you tell a story that would make a current day uh, parent panic about their child's safety because I, I was terrified of New York coming from Pittsburgh and Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, the first time I went to Manhattan, I went with my parents in like the early seventies. I think the first time I went there by myself was the summer of 1985 and times square just seemed terrifying. Cause as you said earlier, son of Sam, the, the power outage, the blackouts, blackout, Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know the the murders that happened to to prostitutes in Times Square, like the na- the national stories, uh, French Connection. It just seems so fucking dangerous. So could you give a more comical <laughs> yeah. tale of danger rather than something that might uh, freak you out in retrospect?
1: Absolutely, no, no, they're, I, they're all they're all I, they're all humorous. Now, I mean the, the the joke. The worst thing was I was the worst guy to muck. Because I had nothing, we were not affluent, we had no money, so i remember i got i mean I got mugged so many times, but there were a couple i remember once a guy approached me a much bigger a you know, very large man and he 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 had a sh- he had sharpened the end of an umbrella, the metal end of the umbrella to a point, and he sticks it into your chest, he sticks it into my chest, and i'm you know eight because I was like really, too, like my parents i, I Oh, can I backtrack for one second? Because You he, sure can. So we move into our apartment, and across the street is this public school called PS75, made famous because Gene Simmons was a substitute teacher there. So we go over, we move, cause my parents didn't give a shit about, um, uh, how I was going to fit in. We move, we all constantly moved in March. So we'd gone down to Oceans. We'd gone down to New Jersey for a year. We moved back to Manhattan in March. And so we go to PS 75 and they're like, no, he can't come here. So I had to go to PS 84, which was much farther away. So it was like a seven block walk through some you know pretty rough streets but anyway so um, my he he points the uh, he puts the uh, the sharpened umbrella point to my chest and he says you know the what what one does say in that situation is give me your money and i pull out a nickel that's all i had i was like a nickel and i'm 8 i'm 8 on my own and he goes a nickel Ugh. and he's he's frustrated he just stomps off but uh, I, my but the last time i got mugged was ninth grade, and we were on the east side, and we were going to a dance and an all girls school because I'd I'd gone to public school through sixth grade, and then the junior high school in my in my area was literally just the place where all the people who had been mugging me were attending. So I was like, I kind of like I'm gonna go. There's a private school that I passed every day, and I was like, I'd like to go there. My parents like, you're never gonna get in there. And I'm like, I did, and then that's where I met uh, a f- probably friend of the show, a friend of yours, Carlos jaycott We met in seventh grade. We both uh, was that Dalton? No, it was Trinity. Trinity. Okay, okay Trinity. Right. so uh. so I start at Trinity. So now ninth grade of Trinity, uh, we're going to a dance at an all-girls school on the east side, and it's me, Carlos. Uh, my buddy Jack Wagonseller from Ocean City, New Jersey, where I used to go spend the summers. Jack Wagonseller, who went to the Kiss concert with me. And we also spent one whole summer just doing the uh, Kiss double platinum album on tennis rackets and trading off the songs. So it's it's Carlos, Jack Wagonseller, and another kid from my class named Elliot. And we'd been drinking, we might've been drinking some beers. It's 1981 in New York City. And we have to go to the bathroom. So we jump over the wall, the big stone wall on the Fifth Avenue side of Central Park. As soon as we jump over the wall, a guy jumps over the wall and points a gun to my head. And then th- about four girls, uh, uh, his, con- his, uh, not his contemporaries, his com- um, uh, co- accomplices sit on the wall as the lookout. So he puts the gun to my head and I'm like, "Oh, we're being robbed right now." Now I, as I mentioned earlier, was not affluent and didn't have much money. All I had was my $20 that was my $20 for the entire weekend. So immediately, I grabbed the $20 out of my pocket, palmed it in my hand when I put my hands up against the wall. So I'm holding it there like a like a like a magician with my thumb. And now at the time too, uh because I uh, I suddenly I'm 14 and testosterone's coursing through my veins, I had fancied myself. I was thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm going to become an actor. Maybe I'm going to become a mercenary, a soldier of fortune. So at the time I thought, maybe I'll become a soldier of fortune. So I was obsessed with James Bond and I was obsessed with soldiers of fortune. So I was like, I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, if he doesn't have that gun, I could take him. I could take him if he didn't have that gun. Now, my other friends, now I'm also feeling very protective because I've brought my friend from New Jersey here. Now he's being held up at gunpoint. And uh, so the first thing they do, it's winter and they want to take all of the coats, right? He wants all of the coats plus the money right they're gonna because these because these, my friends were one of my friends was slightly more affluent so i'm now the spokesman of the group and i'm like please don't take his coat that's his dad's coat. he's gonna get in trouble like i'm trying to reason with the guy I, I and and but at the whole time I'm kind of looking at the gun because I'm like if he looks away I bet I could grab that gun and I could get him right you know because because I'm psychotic I'm not well at that time like I'm just but I, you know and and finally he he catches me looking at him and looking at the gun he's like what do you, you what do what you what do you, you, you think you're gonna take me and they're like what are you you are you the wise one you the wise one and then the girls in as a core like a, a you know the evil Greek chorus on the wall going shoot the wise one shoot the wise one <laughs> so uh uh so eventually i was a i think they all gave up their money and but i was able to convince him not to take any of the coats and i kept my 20 dollars and so then we you know we we get in the back of the police car looking for our our the perpetrators as we go and i uh
0: wait did you go to the cops after they left did you guys flag down a cop or something like that i god we must have flagged down a cop after it happened because i
1: mean it was you know because i only at that point been held up by just a knife point sharpened umbrella and just people who were just twice my size. So the gun was, that was, you know, that was exciting and new, but, uh, and I remember being in the back of the cop car cause, uh, my, my friends were all pretty traumatized and I still, you know, thinking I'm James Bond, I was, I was doing all the talking and, but because I hadn't had anything stolen, I, I had no, um, uh, I, I had nothing to, they, they didn't care what I had to say. And I remember the cop going like, what do you, Hey, you want to be called, you think you're a lawyer? And I'm like, yeah, maybe I, maybe I'll become a lawyer. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, but it was, uh, it was constant and, uh, there was danger at all times. Uh, I mean, I remember like the next year, some guys ran me over with his bike cause he thought I looked at him funny and start beating me with like a big chain, you know, but in re- it's funny cause ew, it formed me and I'm so glad I live through it, but it's, you know, we would never, I, I, I let your child walk to school you know by themselves now you know now we've all become protective parents right and i wonder there's a fine line i mean that was part of the reason we came to the cities to give her a little city experience and obviously the world's changed i mean new york city is hilarious when i go back there now i'm like i, I don't even recognize it because it's i mean certainly you know and everything changed in the 90s and, and the 2000s and it just got safe everywhere which was um I I, I don't even, when I go to New York now, because I mean, I moved to California in 1992. Um, When I go to New York now, I I don't even, I come as a tourist. I mean, my dad is still in the apartment that I grew up in. And I mean, obviously that neighborhood has changed because when I was still, my school was on the West side, but none of my friends lived on the West side. Everyone lived on the East side because it was a private school and no one would come to my house. No one would come to the West side. And the West side didn't even start to get fashionable until the mid eighties and show, and then now it's, you know, it's just families and safety
0: and gorgeous.
1: In 1982,
0: The Cure recorded and released Pornography, an album that cemented The Cure's stature as purveyors of the emerging Gothic rock genre, especially when the band adopted their signature look of big, towering hair and smeared lipstick on their faces. The tour for pornography also saw a series of incidents that prompted Simon Gallup to leave the band at the time. Smith even rejoined Susie and the Banshees as their lead guitarist in November of 1982. With Gab's departure from The Cure and Smith's work with Sushi, rumors spread that The Cure had broken up because they were basically just a duo of Robert Smith and Lol Tolhurst. However, that duo released the single Let's Go to Bed in late 82. While Smith wrote the single as a throwaway, stupid pop song, it became a minor hit in the UK, reaching number 44 on the singles charts. The Cure soon followed up with two more successful songs, The Walk and Love Cats, which became the band's first British top 10 hit. Now, let me ask this. I know you are a great guitar player, as well as a phenomenal actor. When did you start picking up your own instruments and playing and, and uh, you know, maybe... Groove into some of the sounds of New York City and the things that you were exposed to.
1: Yeah, no, because uh, my first career path was I thought I was going to become a musician. Like I was so into mm. music. So in sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade, I started. Oh, fifth grade, yeah. In my in, at PS eighty four, I started playing the drums and. Uh, but everyone was playing. I had my little group of friends. We were all drummers, and I—I actually—I I was part of a woodworking class, and I built this table with holes in it. And what I did is I took different coffee cans. My—that was my first drum kit. I took coffee cans and then smaller cans, peanut cans, like Mister Peanut peanut cans because they had the plastic tops, and I made a drum set. And they were—and I—I had it all laid out so the the bigger Folgers uh, coffee. Uh, container would be like my kick drum or one of my floor toms. And I'd put pennies in one of the smaller ones and turn it into a snare. And so I, and then I eventually got, I found a, a marching band snare drum on the street and added that to the mix. And then I, I remember I got like the Sears kids kit, which was garbage but i would just sit in my room because the the beauty of living on the upper west side is when we we moved into our pre-war apartment that cost like 600 bucks a month right with three you know because no one wanted to live there but the walls were a foot thick so no one none of my neighbors knew that i had a drum set or was playing the drums and i would come home from school so in fifth and sixth grade i'd come home from school every day and just play along with kiss alive too right i just do the whole thing and you know obviously i i only got to sing beth because that was the only drummer song um And then I formed an all drummer band. We we played one concert at PS84, the all drummer band. And we did, we did, of course, what was our first song? we will rock you because that you know you don't need much and then we also did because i'd seen rod stewart perform at the un we did an all drum version of do you think i'm sexy and and of course i did all the vocals because I, I i was the i was the ham of the group but then when in seventh grade when i got to trinity i realized i don't want to be in the back right i don't drummers i i don't have i also didn't have that coordination and i don't i, I was a mediocre i was a mediocre drummer i didn't have the Don Henley, uh, Phil Collins, uh, Gene. So I started to take guitar in seventh grade. And I think probably like you, I was... There was so much music going on that I was into all of it. So I was into Zeppelin and I was into the Stones and I was into the early Iron Maiden, but I was also into all of the punk stuff uh, that was happening and in the, in the post punk stuff. So um, I took guitar and then in eighth grade, we played the school dance. And this yes. is so, so, eighth grade, my band. So I formed the band with Ian Levy. Now, Ian Levy was really into the blues and I was really into rock. And so we called our band, very imaginatively, Black and Blue. (laughs) <laughs> and every Saturday, in every Saturday in eighth grade, we would go to Ian Levy's house. He was on 86th Street, just a few blocks from my house, and we would rehearse. And And we'd spend most of the time kicking people out of the band or asking people to join the band, because we were always trying to find a drummer, always trying to find a bass player. We'd always get someone to go down to Manny's Music and buy a bass, like some rich kid, like, buy a bass, you'll be the bass player. I'll teach you how to play the bass, right? <laughs> we were trying to get people in there. And before we even had many songs down, we already had groupies. There were some girls from Sacred Heart, uh, a Catholic school school and they would, sure. they would come and in fact they even made us little black and blue t-shirts <laughs> which is, they made us these you know back in the you know the late 70s early 80s when this is it was all about going to the t-shirt shop and they made us these cool black and blue shirts which I still I wish to god I still had I remember he and I wore them to Madison Square Garden to go to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus and I remember somebody we were trying to buy beer at like 12 or 13 from the concession at Madison Square Garden during the circus and they're like what's that like this is our band black and blue but anyway so So we convinced we had to audition for the principal. This is for the junior high school. So the seventh and eighth grade dance, we auditioned for our principal and the history teacher. And we had one song down really great. We had Brown Sugar down really, you know, before Brown Sugar got canceled, which should have been canceled then. I was like, how does this, I don't even know how this song exists, but we did it and we got, um, we got the gig, uh, playing the, um, the, the the eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade dance. Um, now, then we got a couple more songs under our belt, but we thought we had a 30 song set. And some of those songs we'd only played once. <laughs> and I had purchased a $100 Hondo SG type guitar from Manny's Music, um, which literally would go out of tune after one chord right so and there were no this is you know this is 1980 so there are no tuners there's nothing like that i had a pitchfork that i would then you know would give me an a and i put it to my ear and then try to tune the guitar so the 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 dance went south pretty quickly in fact when you and i i remember if one of your birthday bashes, uh, the band that I had with Coleman and Bunin, we played and we were rehearsing with you. And that was finally at 39 40. That's when I was going to exercise the demon of not having rehearsed. And I made them before we performed your, for your birthday bash. I, I made, I made us run through the entire set at Coleman's house before we even did the show. Cause I was like, never again will this ever happen, <laughs> <laughs> but I've got some cool, <laughs> but I've got some cool pictures of it. Cause the drummer, Bill jerima he, he, I, I look cool. I, I was, I, cause I was totally into the Ramones, So I had my like, guitar slung really low and I'm wearing my camo pants and it looks, I, I had the look down. I just didn't quite have the chops yet. And, um, and it was funny cause the bass player, um, at one point, the guitar player, Ian Levy unplugged him cause he wasn't playing his bass. He didn't know any of the songs, but the first song that I learned, uh, myself was Ramone's. Uh, and when they wind up playing that, you know, all those years later, uh, at your birthday bash, and then in ninth grade, I had a, we had a band that they would, they would only let me be the singer. So Ian had formed another band.
0: And I remember right. I remember as a dick move.
1: He formed another band and it was like, they were only going to, cause he was really into the blues and we were only going to do like Almond Brothers and stuff like that. And I remember right before we went, so they made me the singer and I was wearing, I was wearing like a Brian Jones cap the whole time. Not Brian Jones. Um, Yeah brian johnson brian johnson sorry i'm thinking brian johnson right of course yeah brian johnson duh i'm wearing that cr- crazy cap and and we're performing whipping posts like i know how to sing whipping posts right? i even know what's going on in that song and i remember we came up with the name of that band right before we went on for the entire high school uh this is ninth grade it was a huge mistake uh my, my girlfriend at the time broke up with me after that performance and uh it, it took a little while to live it down we we were like hey man let's call what, what should we call ourselves we're the tempest because we we're into like we we're probably reading shakespeare plays we're the, tempest. Ladies and gentlemen, the Tem- you know, and, and the mistake we made is we killed it. Like um, whipping post went really well. And we did one other song and we were doing really great. And then we said, let's do an encore. Cause they were cheering for us and it was honky tonk women and we hadn't rehearsed it. And it just went south really, really, really quickly. <laughs> but, and so then, so then I, in 10th grade, I, I started doing all the plays and I sort of made a conscious decision. I was like, I think you know, I had decide sort of acting or music. And in 10th grade, I, I knew that I was acting was really what I wanted to do. And, and then that's all I did. So every summer after 10th grade, I was either doing summer stock and then in my senior year at high school, my first manager saw me in a play. That was also one of the benefits of living in New York City is that you just, people could come see you. And I started earning a living as an actor uh, by the spring of my senior year of high school.
0: In 1984, The Cure released The Top, a generally psychedelic album, on which Smith played most of the instruments except the drums and the saxophone. Mm. The album was a top 10 hit in the UK, and it was The Cure's first studio album to break the Billboard 200 in the US It reached number 180. The Cure then embarked on their worldwide top tour, but needed a new bassist after that run. However, the bassist slot was not vacant too long, after a Cure roadie named Gary Biddles brokered a reunion between Smith and former bassist Simon Gallup. Soon after reconciling, Smith asked Gallup to rejoin the band. He was ecstatic about Gallup's return and declared to Melody Maker, it's a group again. Um, All right, let's go to, I want to hear about those early, what was your first acting gig where you were like, oh, okay, not only I can do this, but, like, this feels like I've arrived a little bit. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the first The first
1: show I did where I knew that maybe acting was a thing was I. we did Oklahoma in sixth grade at PS84. And I played Will, the comic uh, male lead. And I gave her all. And I just remember coming off the stage and my parents going, you're, you're really good. And then other parents were going, you're really good good. And they all seemed surprised. And I remember, I I loved it. I was, I was always performing. I was performing since I was, I mean, forever, I was always putting on shows and dressing up. And if I'd go to someone's house, I'd be like, Hey, let's put on a show and, you know, do it for the adults or whatever it was. And so I had that in my back pocket, but then when I went to Trinity, I thought, Oh, you know, I'm here with all these sort of rich corporate type people. I go, I don't think anyone, uh, I think being an actor, everyone was going to be a doctor or a lawyer." So I kept saying, oh, I'll be a lawyer because it seemed like acting. It seems like that's what lawyers do, right? You go in the courtroom and you act. And then... I had some epiphany while I, over the summer between ninth and tenth grade because I was on a tour. I was on a. I was living with families in France on a school school group thing, and some of the kids from my school had were the theater kids, and they were like, "Oh, you should come t- audition for the musical in in the fall." And I, and I thought I'm going to definitely do that, and we did. Bye, Bye, Birdie, and I got cast as Birdie and Conrad Birdie, and I was really lucky too because it was just the most miraculous of uh, kismetty little thing that when I came into ninth grade uh, at Trinity. Uh, this new uh, head of the drama program Came this guy named Michael Gilbert, and suddenly we were just doing world class uh, productions. He was he, uh, everything I need, everything I learned as an actor uh, that I use to this day, I learned doing the productions and learned from him. And I had this really fortuitous experience because I charmed my way through uh, seventh and eighth grade Latin because Ms. Pappas just found me very charming. And <laughs> so she kept passing me. So at the beginning of ninth grade, I'm sitting there in Latin three and I'm sitting there with all of the geniuses from my school, like P- everyone who's getting perfect scores on their SATs and are all going to Yale. And that wasn't me. I was, because um, uh, the other thing, which was funny about the time at Trinity, which doesn't exist anymore, eighth grade, it was still all boys. And then the girls came in ninth grade. And I was like, my ninth grade grades—I went from you know A's and B's to just D's because I was like, there's girls everywhere. Yeah. But um, but um, so I, I I go to the first day of Latin three, and I remember Doctor Smith, a person who had gone on record saying he didn't believe in the education of women, um, had said uh, he hands me some sort of like Cicero or uh, Virgil, and he goes, translate this, and I, I just like I don't I can get one of these words. He's like, you're here under false pretenses. So I went down to the office and I was like, well, I better get I better drop Latin 3 and I was like, you know what? I'll pick up theater 1. And that was it. Changed my life. And then doing uh Bye Bye Birdie and then I from then on I did all of I did all of the plays. And we did amazing stuff. It was interesting because Michael Gilbert really drummed into us this sense of being a professional and what it meant to be a professional and taking it seriously and and what was cool is because it was the private schools in new york city like none of those sports teams except for like john McEnroe had gone to my school but that was it Unless you were a tennis player no one was going on to play professional sports but the plays had gotten such a reputation in town that girls would come from all over from all the other schools to come see the plays so it was like boom i mean i'd if I'd been, you know, the best soccer player, the best baseball player or lacrosse player, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gotten the same cachet as being in those plays. People really came. And so, and that was, you know, as part of my trajectory, obviously, I, the love of theater and um, wanting to meet girls is obviously a, a major pr- priority, <laughs> um, which is funny because I, I was thinking, you know, you, I'll, I'll, t- I'll finish this story, but you and I could have been at Northwestern together. Um, and should have been at Northwestern together. I applied early to Northwestern and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and got in um, and then made the decision to go to Chapel Hill. But this was based on, so I'd gone to this very, uh, you know, this competitive academic school and now I knew I was going to be an actor. Um, uh, These managers would see me do a diary of Van Frank in my senior year and i meet with them in the morning and they send me to my first commercial audition that afternoon. I book it my first audition I ever go to, and that that commercial was uh, for Panasonic and it premiered during Live Aid that summer. So that commercial paid for the first two years of college. And so I was like, I wanted to go to college, not really because I thought I needed it because I knew I was gonna be an actor, but I wanted to go because of the movie Animal House. So I'd seen Animal House and I go, I've lived, I've never cut a class in my life, except for the one time I left to go see Jay Giles Band. I've been this really studious guy. I know I'm going to be an actor, but I want to have this, I want to have this I know you joined a fraternity. I wanted to have this experience. I want to go. And so when we went, Carlos Jaycott and I had applied early to Northwestern and we went in October to stay at a fraternity house and you get to spend like the week in there and see if you like it. And I just remember it's like cold and rainy and everyone's wearing sweaters. And then I go down to University of Ch- you know North Carolina at Chapel Hill and everyone's just like, it, it looks like the, the per- picture perfect epitome of what a college looks like. And everyone's gorgeous. And I'm like, I'm going here. You know, so... <laughs> That. But I think you know now because we all connected in the late '90s in 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 Los Angeles. But I, I mean, all of my, you know my whole group. My, when I found my tribe, it was with you know with you guys and all the IO people. And I, I was like, oh God, what would my life be like if I'd met you then? If I got, if we'd all met in 1985,
0: 1986. Um, but well, it, it's it's weird because everyone. Meets eventually. Right. You, you know, you mentioned Carlos Jake Gotton for people listening to this podcast. I mean, one of the great comic actors of all time, one of the great improvisers of all time. Oh, yeah. You know, Carlos turns down Northwestern, but Carlos comes to Chicago right. in the early 90s and sets that town on fire yeah. with his improvisational skills. And he meets the people that I went to school with. Right. Do you know what I mean? And when I moved out to Los Angeles with my friends from school, you know we meet carlos because everyone's like carlos is the funniest right. guy in chicago blah 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 so it's all the world is very small um but that's um but you would yeah it was bo- it was cold and boring and everyone wore sweaters and it was kind of lame In 1985, the new Cure lineup, including Smith, Tolhurst, and Simon Gallup, released The Head on the Door, an album that managed to bind together the optimistic and pessimistic aspects of the band's music. The Head on the Door reached number seven in the UK and was the band's first entry into the Real American charts at number 59, partly due to the international impact of In Between Days and Close to Me. Following a world tour for The Head on the Door, The Cure released the singles compilation Standing on a Beach in 1986. This compilation made the U.S. top 50 again and saw the reissue of three previous singles, Boys Don't Cry, Let's Go to Bed, and Charlotte Sometimes. This release was also accompanied by the video compilation Staring at the Sea. During this time, the band became very popular in Europe, particularly in France and Germany, and increasingly popular in both the U.S. and Canada. Now, speaking of Northwestern, when I get to Northwestern in the fall of 1986... Every other kid in my dorm had both head on the door and standing on a beach. And that was my oh, real yeah. first introduction to the cure was buying the standing on the beach compilation, right? Because I'm just, uh, you know, I've, as I've said on this podcast so many times before, I'm just sort of breaking out of my metal phase, right? I'm already into the replacements in Husker do. Uh, cause that music's matched the intensity of Iron Maiden and Judas priest for me. Right. But now I'm, I'm, I'm really going to be exposed to, um, all the new wave bands. Cause when I was a metal kid in Albuquerque, you can't, you can't admit to liking the Smiths. You can't admit to liking Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, New Order, all that stuff. Um, you got to hate it. But God, did I love it. And I love that. Co- I wish I still had that cassette because I can see I could see it when I when I bought it at Rose Records and Evan still. In the oh, Illinois. yeah.
1: I still have it on vinyl. I I gave it to my daughter because she's now she got a 1970s stereo set. So she has got all the LPs. But yeah, that
0: was that singles compilation was magical. Yeah, That and Joshua tree for me really <laughs> define like my, yeah. my, I could, I could, and, and the REM's document that was oh, also yeah. fucking huge. Um, so tell me about your time in Chapel Hill. Well, so you, you get to Chapel Hill full of piss and vinegar wanting to do drama. Still? Oh yeah, no, 100%. Like, I mean, I
1: knew I, knew I, was, I was a drama major and I'd heard that they, they'd had a really good program, but also they'd been voted in Lisa Burnback's book on colleges as the, like in the top three party schools. So that was also something I was looking for. Now, I didn't stay there long because after about a year of partying and one, one beautiful night on mushrooms at the end of my fir- freshman year, I was like, this isn't me. This isn't what I do. I mean, I really, I went crazy when I went there because- oh. The, uh, crazy in, in a good way, not in a, in a bad way. So coming from my very insular world in New York City, like all of the kids from my school and the schools that I uh, we associated with, they were all going to the same colleges. So the other reason, the reason I was also thinking about Northwestern and thinking about UNC is like I didn't want to go to any of the New England colleges. or I didn't want to see anyone from New York City. And... Uh, so, uh, North Carolina seemed like a whole nother world to me. And I, it was a new experience and I wanted to join a fraternity and do all that stuff. So I even, what well, they handed out some sort of questionnaire, I think maybe if you were going to rush or something like that and they go, what's your nickname? And I never had a nickname, but like my girlfriend that summer was, we they jokingly called me Dex. So I said, my nickname is Dex dex diamond so i re i created this whole other character when i first went there so like for the first six weeks if you met me in the first six weeks of my freshman year you knew me as dex
0: what, where did dex come from it
1: was like some it was some uh, play on words with her name and uh, the girl at the time and so it was just it was silly but i was like that's my nickname and i want to have because i'd always wanted to have a nickname and- Dex diamond Dex Diamond. So, uh, if you met me in the That's first- That's your year, glam metal name. This <laughs> is my glam metal name. But, uh, so I was Dex Diamond and I, you know, I got, I was just drinking my face off and, and, and doing all the plays and, and learning. But, uh, I had this epiphany at the end of my freshman year. I was like, this isn't where I should be. And I'm not Dex Diamond, I'm Reed Diamond. So I came back for a sophomore year. Luckily I met a really good, fr- uh, one of my best, best friends, but I go, I got to get out of here. Um, uh, because, Everyone's saying I'm really good, but I didn't feel really good because I was kind of, I was kind of winging it. I I remember I'd be in the back of a drama class, like learning the monologue while other people were performing theirs. And I'd go up there and be like, oh, that was great. I'm like, it's not, it can't be. I need to get better. And I really had this sense i go i want this is what i I love it i want to do this for my entire life i need classical training i go i want to be able to do Chekhov and i want to be able to do Lear when i'm 70 those are my thoughts and that weekend just everything you know is fortuitous and kismetty um the new york times sunday magazine had an article about juilliard and yay and um Yale at the time was a grad school and I'm leaving in the middle of, of my sophomore year. So I go, Hey, I'll go to this Juilliard place. And at the time my favorite actor was William Hurt cause it's 85, 86 and he'd gone to Juilliard. So I called them up and I said, Hey, can I, can I apply to Juilliard? They go, oh, you know, the applications were due like two weeks ago. And I said, well, Hey, there's this new thing called federal express. If I fed X, my application it gets to you tomorrow. Do you, and we we'll, and they go, well, we'll see. And I got the audition. I didn't know there was a hard, Place to get into, so I wasn't nervous. I prepared my Shakespeare monologue, and for my contemporary, contrasting contemporary monologue, I did Charlie Brown from Your Good Man Charlie Brown, talking about the. <laughs> I think you know I didn't know right and because because at this time also it's not Hurly Burly it wasn't Hurly Burly I wasn't I because I just done the plays in school and then I was an actor in the summer so in the summers. I would go, you know, my first between junior year and senior year of high school, I did Williamstown theater festival. I was an apprentice mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And then once I started, uh, got my manager after doing diary and Frank, I would do commercials every summer. So, and they would pay for school. So I, before, um, so, uh, uh, so I didn't know that Juilliard was, I didn't know that it was hard to get into. And I'd been used to commercial auditions, but like, they like called half the people back. So I was like, oh, everyone's going to get called back. It didn't work out that way, but I got in. And so then I moved back to New York City and uh, luckily got a commercial right before school started that paid for the, back when they used to run forever, paid for the first two years of Juilliard. And I began my
0: classical training. On oh,
1: down fascination street.
0: In 1987, The Cure released the eclectic double LP Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me which reached number six in the UK. It was also the band's first entry into the U.S. Top 40 at number 35, which reflected the band's rising mainstream popularity. The album's third single, Just Like Heaven, quickly became the band's most successful single in America. Brendan and Ryan Smith saw The Cure on that tour in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In 1989, The Cure released Disintegration, an album that entered the British charts at number three. Disintegration includes the singles Lullaby, Love Song, and Pictures of You. Disintegration also reached number 12 in the U.S. The first U.S. single was Fascination Street, which reached number one on the American modern rock charts by 1992. Disintegration had sold over 3 million copies worldwide worldwide. The Cure were elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. They still continue on to this day. They are incredible live. Reed, I saw their last show at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, yeah. Um, an audio visual masterpiece. Oh, yeah. Like, what a stage show. And uh, Robert Smith sounds as good as ever. And there was a smile on his face when oh, yeah. he elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> um, I want to know something. Yes, my Lord. I don't usually ask this kind of thing, but this kid from, from Manhattan who has the rough and tumble Upper West Side experience, has the experience of going to Trinity, has the experience of blowing it out in in Chapel Hill and then coming to a place like Juilliard uh, and who has worked consistently for a long goddamn time, dude. Is there anything that you could turn around and say to young people starting out? I mean, that's such a weird, vanilla question, but you have so much experience and I don't mean like, here's how you approach an audition or this is what you do when you meet with producers. I'm talking about like any sort of wisdom that you'd like to impart on people who might be, you know, starting out or or whatnot. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, I think about this all the time and, and you know, because suddenly
1: I went from the youngest guy in the cast to the oldest guy in the cast. Now I'm the old man on, on most of the shows I do and and people, it's funny because you just I don't feel like I've earned, you know, because uh, of of all my self loathing. But you know, you 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 take sort of on a sage uh, position where people want advice and they want to know stories and they want to know they want advice. But um, I mean, I think, you know, life is more important than art. Mm. And you know, when we all met. I was in L.A. I moved there in 1992, and I never felt at home there until I met my tribe. And my tribe was all of you people, all of the I.O. people, all the Chicago people. And it was this apocryphal night. And I think you must have been there. But I was invited by Betty and Mike, who were my entree, Mike Coleman, uh, to a, which is apropos of this time, to an Oscar party at Betsy and Adrian's house. If and if people don't know this, the the Academy Awards are kind of like the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. And prior to that, I'd gone to other parties and there's always a pool, right, where you have to uh, bet on who's going to win what and whoever wins the most gets the whole pot. And of all the Oscar parties I'd gone to prior to meeting this group, I'd won and it always, it turned dark right away. And I would, they'd be like, oh, everyone would be mad. No one talked talk to me. And I'd always be like, hey, you guys, I, I'd love to just take you out. Like, it's you know, we all put in our 20 bucks, but like, let me take you out. I'll take you all out for beers. And they would never go, never go, never go. And then the other quality of those parties is everyone's bitter. And they're they're talking at the TV and like, fuck you. You don't deserve to be nominated, blah, 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 blah. So I get brought to this party where I meet everyone. Everyone is at Betsy and Adrian's house. And I'm the only person not from this group. I'm welcomed immediately. And there's all, you know, all the beer shark mice guys, all of the girl team balls, all these amazingly talented, gorgeous people. And the first thing I notice is um, everyone's hilarious. The funniest people I've ever met, but none of it's mean spirited. So they're watching the Oscars and everyone's like good for him and the jokes have nothing to do with like sour grapes and I'm like these people are amazing and everyone welcomed me in and then we do the 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 we do the the pool the Oscar pool and my way of handicapping it was I was like you know, in the past, I go, well, if, if you're going to play this, you got to play to win. And the only way to win is like, try to figure out what's going to happen in the smaller categories that no one knows about. Like everyone can sort of handicap best actor or best picture. But like I need to know about foreign documentary or whatever it is. So I'd always come prepared and people get upset. Well, anyway, at this party, um, it, Adrian had done the same thing. Right. So we're neck and neck. And so now we're counting down like we're far and ahead of everyone. We've got 19 right and we're neck and neck. And and but instead everyone's cheering everyone on. And I'm the outsider and we're cheering everyone on. And finally at the end, I pull ahead and I win the Oscar pool at this party with a bunch of strangers who are all lovely. And I say, I'd love to take you all out. And everyone's like, Let's go. And we all went to the cat and the fiddle. And that was it. And my life changed. And so you need to be around good people. You need to find your tribe because life is so much more important and you, you, you need that and you need that experience. And so, yeah, you. I can say all the things like travel, read books, but just remember, you know, you need to find your family and your real life is infinitely more important than your, your art.
0: I dude, I, I have been saying to people uh, a lot lately, find your tribe. Like your to tribe. me, that's always yeah. been, that's always been the secret of, uh, survival in los angeles yeah there's a lot of fucking crazy people here there's a lot of amazing people here i was lucky because i already had a tribe i had a a built-in tribe i can't believe that betsy didn't win the oscar pool that night uh (laughs) because she usually did Uh, i'm sure she was pissed at adrian for winning that uh i was there but i'm sure i was so drunk and high that um (laughs) i was not very social (laughs) but um yeah no find your tribe that's such amazing advice because it really is um it, it really is an amazing thing, um, dude. Oh my gosh. I've kept you for an hour and nine minutes. I could go for another two. This is, I, I've just been looking forward to this beyond. Well, I know you can. So <laughs> let's just call this. This is just round one. Okay. We we will do round two in person oh at gosh. the fabulous Zappa studios. When you return to Southern California, I can't wait. Because I'm sure that that's, that's got to be on the horizon somewhere. Oh yeah. It's coming. It's coming soon. Okay, Good. All right. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I'm mad because Bosch. B- by the way, just quick tangent. Bosch yeah. is one of the best LA shows I've ever seen. Right. Because the locations are fucking ridiculous. They go to real deal mom and pop hot dog places yeah. and burger stands, and it's just amazing. So, uh, I just hope that you return soon, and, and we'll do this in person because it's a whole totally different deal. But I'm so honored and grateful to you uh, for showing up today with the Thunder. <laughs> You came prepared. Uh, your New York stories are mind-blowing. And um, you you might need to put it all into a book someday. Love you, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure
1: to see your gorgeous face um, on, on the uh, squad cast. Well, dude, thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. So many great guests coming down the pike. But come on! Dex Diamond was here today. <laughs> Holy fucking yes, shit. Yes! <laughs> and of course, the Brando Cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinger. So until the next time, cast Kittens. me. When I see you skies of kite
1: As high as I might I can't get that high how you